I'm Alex Mito. And I'm James Milley. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. What's going on, business artists? You are listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means that you are certifiably awesome. And if you don't know me by now, my name is Alex Mito. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. We're the most widespread art fair for artists in the U.S. and also one of the top resources for all things art, artists, and marketing of your art. I'm also one of our two hosts here on The Artist Business Plan, along with my partner, James Milley. We now reach over 6,000 monthly listeners in over 100 countries around the globe and growing every single week. Today, I'm very excited to have Noah Becker from White Hot Magazine here with us on the mic. And I am broadcasting to you live today from Mexico City at Nooks, one of our friends here in Mexico City who's been kind enough to lend me their Wi-Fi. Noah is going to share an amazing class with you today on how to develop a public image as an artist. I don't know about you guys, but I am so excited to hear what he has to say. But first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you ABP listeners. Artists, have you ever felt anxious, alone, and not sure about the next move for your career? Good news, those days are over. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine art fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we are offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. All right, so we are back here with Noah Becker and we're ready to change the way that you think about your art career. Noah Becker is an acclaimed painter with exhibitions at numerous international museums and galleries. He's also a jazz saxophonist and the founding editor of White Hot Magazine. Noah Becker has also been a contributing writer for Art in America, Interview Magazine, Canadian Art, The Huffington Post, and Art Voices over the years. Becker lives and works in New York City and Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, Noah. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yep, we're glad to have you. And before we really dive into our questions, there's something I want to ask you that helps our listeners get to know the real you. And that question is, what is the earliest memory that you have of art? I was making something with my brother that was like musketeers, but they were mice. So it was like musketeers. And then he had his own characters and he would draw his characters battling with my characters. I love that. I'm also a big uh, Alexander Dumo fan. So that was one of the books I read when I was a kid, The Three Musketeers. So I love the mixing of the Musketeers and the Mouseketeers. Right. So jumping off from that story, let's talk a little bit about White Hot and your podcast. So you created White Hot Magazine, and now you also have a podcast like this one where you talk about art. As a painter with a deep appreciation for art history, where did the inspiration begin for you to create an entire publication where you can talk about contemporary art and then later a podcast? Well, I think you have to remember that it's not something you can really decide to do and be successful at because it's a very small art world. 
and the people that are doing things have a lot of money and are usually a very tight-knit corporate structure, at least in the, um, the art magazine world. When I started, there was a small handful of art magazines and a small handful of maybe art websites, but not specifically online magazine website kind of thing. And, and just being a painter, working in that way, it, it felt very daunting. Like if I was going to step into publishing about art, that it was either going to make my career or ruin my career. But I had to kind of t- decide whether I wanted to jump in or just kind of continue to live the life I was living without participating on that level. It, what then inspired you to make that jump, right? From just from being a painter to being a painter who also, you know, curates arguably one of the, I would say one of the first maybe online art magazines. Right. What gave you that inspiration to make the jump? I was a fan of Artnet back in the, the older days of Artnet. And they had a magazine section that I liked, but I always thought that it would be good to sort of do something that was primarily a magazine where you didn't have to like go through it in a way where you would sort of, you know, the way you would do kind of like a get to the magazine area of a site that was not necessarily dedicated to that. So uh, I thought about ways of of doing something that was a dedicated online magazine because I didn't, I was tired of kind of jumping from art gallery website to art gallery website. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. So like, you know, getting straight to the more exciting editorial content versus like the ads or whatever else you were seeing at the time, like being able to actually have the editorial, which is something I've always admired about White Hat. I feel like you guys are 90%, 95% editorial, like, which is cool, in my opinion. Well, we do a mixture of reviews and interviews mm-hmm. and occasionally some other kind of stuff. but. We don't do a whole lot of news. I think Artnet and Art News and those kind of places sort of have that covered. Right. So you've I, kind of filled a niche. I mean, this is this has been like an ongoing project for me for 15 years, and I've worked with 500 different writers, and we have 5,000 plus articles. Wow. 5,000 articles. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. But then recently, it's like something happened where it's just, it was always popular and it was always respected. But recently, something happened where it was just kind of propelled right to the absolute top of the whole thing. What do you mean? Like like the White Hat was propelled to the top? Like of- it was just, it became unquestionable. It became like one of the top two or three art magazines in the world. Congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> As opposed to like, you know, I mean, you do an art fair and it's a known art fair, but you have like Art Basel and Freeze and Nada and some other art fairs that are that are obviously different than your art fair, but it's like there comes a point where like your art fair is going to be on the level of Art Basel in the minds of the collective consciousness. And it's not something you can really force. It either happens, people either accept it or they don't. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it, it kind of ties into something we talk to artists a lot about, which is just kind of keep pushing forward to keep pushing forward and you know, the good things come when they come. Uh, I mean, that's the same thing with artists and paintings yeah. and certainly my own paintings as well. You asked me a question that I didn't answer, though, which is like, what was my impetus for starting a magazine? Mm-hmm. To be honest, I was I had a near nervous breakdown in Miami when I was showing in different galleries there. I was I decided to quit being an artist and quit 
being part of the art world. And I went into a month-long depression where I didn't answer the phone and I was drinking a lot of absinthe, as corny as that sounds. And I grew a beard because I was just like not looking in the mirror. I sort of went into this Howard Hughes state. And then I came up with the idea of starting an art magazine. And that was kind of a crazy idea, but I was like, why should I wait around for these art dealers to present me the way I want to be presented? Nobody really cares what the art dealers do. They only care when they get one sentence in the New York Times or Art Forum or something. And I thought, well, that's where all the power is, is in writing about art and publishing about art. It was. It ended up being kind of like a, a bit of a Pandora's box because they had created such a closed-off, exclusive art writing situation with a handful of magazines that there was this pressure and also simultaneously unbeknownst to me there was well not entirely unbeknownst to me but there was a paradigm shift happening where people were reading their news online 2005 this was before facebook facebook was like in 2007 and then we did the first contemporary art group on facebook that related to the magazine sort of the rise of social media kind of pulled everything up by its coattails. And then later on, people started having a lot of art-related discussions on social media. I'm not trying to be the grand old man of show business, but we did kind of innovate at a certain point. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting how you kind of came around during that time, just before Facebook and social media rose, that really does help get the conversation going, I guess. But I think that's a really interesting story, kind of coming from you know a difficult moment in your personal life as an artist and then seeing like, okay, how can I subvert the power structure and do something independent? I think that's a really cool sentiment for the listeners to take home with them. Um, I mean, I don't think I knew exactly what I was getting involved in. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's another, another aspect where you, you can't really ask for what you want and make it happen. You can try, but on a certain level, it's like you don't choose it, it chooses you. And I don't think a lot of people can wrap their head around it because I've seen a lot of people who are artists and they have tons and tons of money and they hire publicists and they hire assistants and they get these massive studios and they're making their work. And it works for some people, but you can't really force that sort of thing. It's like the world either loves you or it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't love you for a while and then suddenly it loves you and it doesn't love you again. <laughs> I like that. Guys, it comes to you. I like that. It chooses you, yeah. You. And that's difficult for people to, to kind of, you just have to kind of keep doing what you're doing and, and, yeah. and stay positive about everything. No, I agree. Keep, keep doing what you're doing and stay positive is a good mantra to take with you. I, I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about public image, which is something that a lot of our artists will ask about. So, no, you're a painter, you're a saxophonist, and you're a somewhat enigmatic figure in the contemporary art world in New York and around. It's safe to say that you've created an image that, you know, that works for you. So what are your tips for an artist who wants to develop a public image? Well, there's one level of it where you do tons and tons and tons of stuff and you just fall into the work and you do as much output as, as possible and you keep doing shows and keep going and going and going and doesn't feel like any progress is happening. And then you wake up 10 years later and people are calling you notorious and known and famous. Then there's another level of it where it's like, if you think about people like, well, I mean, I always use Warhol as an example. 
as, as mainstream as his whole thing has sort of become. But like, even without his paintings, he's kind of like a, a human art piece. You know what I mean? He's like fictionalized himself. Absolutely. The way he dressed and one eyebrow is dyed different color than the other eyebrow and he wears a wig. And I'm not saying he like go that far, but it can work for people to try and think about their public image. Yeah. I mean, there's an aspect of entertainment to art and there's an aspect of celebrity now. I spent a lot of time researching and studying the social and publishing activities of Warhol. Not so much, I mean, I'm familiar with his art, obviously, but I kind of just focused on his social scene and his publishing activities and his filmmaking activities and sort of the way that the founding of Interview Magazine happened in the sort of golden era of art publications. I don't do as much celebrity as Interview Magazine does, but I have done a lot of celebrity stuff. I mean, I think I got trapped in a bigger persona and a bigger fame than I had anticipated is what happened. And I've never really wanted to be that guy because I'm kind of a nice person. But a lot of people approach me in a way where they assume that I'm not as nice as I am. And then I get, I kind of learn the hard way that I have to kind of be a little bit more guarded and a little bit less open. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I mean, I think kind of going back. Not that, I'm, not that the paparazzi is chasing me down the street yeah. and I'm signing autographs. That, I mean, I, I spent some time with Adrian Brody, who's a friend of mine, and oh, cool. that's more of his kind of movie yeah. star, Oscar winner kind of thing. I mean, very few people in the art world are going to have that level of fame. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And I, I think kind of going back to mentioning Warhol a bit besides his art, but kind of being a walking art piece. Yeah, maybe you don't want the, the paparazzi chasing you or to, you know, overdo it. But there's maybe some benefit to branding yourself in a way. I mean, I know when I first started working in art, for one, I love uh, I love cool clothes. That's something I really enjoy. But I, I would wear an interesting blazer every time I would go out with a blazer pin or something. And I started to just be noticed anytime I walked in a room. I was like, hey, mm. which blazer did you wear last week or something? So... I think uh, it's interesting for artists to kind of think about like, not necessarily like you have to do this, but something to think about, you know, do you want to cultivate it? Well, it depends on how consciously you want to pursue a public image. Yeah. Or if you just, some, I mean, some people just start nat- have a natural star quality and a natural charisma that people gravitate towards. Yeah. Well, we should only hope. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've had a little bit of that, but also my background in playing the saxophone and performing people in jazz clubs is, is something that's assisted me in kind of knowing the difference between an audience and a room of people. Yep. No, I totally agree. Like knowing the difference between an audience and a room full of people. Sort of knowing where that line, where something ordinary starts to become kind of magical and also just kind of how to get people's attention in very different ways. I I mean, if you do something for 30 years in front of audiences, like playing saxophone, I'm very comfortable in front of crowds as a result. Yeah. So kind of segging from that, I mean, getting attention, I think is is a good seg into the next question, which is, you know, obviously there's no perfect formula, but coming from the perspective of an arts writer and an editor of an online arts magazine, what are some steps that an artist can take to 
get the interest of the media so that they get generally get noticed basically well you could pay a publicist four grand a month <laughs> there are some publicists that are very good and i have some friends who have four or five thousand dollar a month publicists and they they do quite their story goes over quite well and gets in all kinds of tv and and print situations if you can't afford that then you can sort of act as your own publicist and try to reach out to people and also um, try to befriend writers who write about art and then they are in touch with editors and magazines and newspapers and they'll try to do you a favor by convincing somebody that you're interesting or or just like come up with a a story that's like like a valuable uh, valuable press story. Artist uh, saves the world through giving <laughs> some of his money to like the SPCA, blah, blah, blah. Or, I don't know. That's obviously a horrible script, but you could think up a paragraph, of, think up a strategy to try to, I mean, there's got to be more than just love me and love my art. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's really what we're saying here is it's more than just love me and love my art. And that's something I feel like a lot of artists really do have to understand when they're looking for press or media is that, yes, you're an artist. Yes, your art is wonderful. But like, we're, you know, from the perspective of the editor or writer, we're looking for the interesting story that is that my readers or my viewers are interested in. I kind of like that you said a paragraph, right? Because my opinion, and I don't know if you totally agree or not, but like, I think it should fit into a paragraph so that I can understand it if I get it in my email. Yeah. And I think the the actual form, the actual way email is best is in short messages, not long, long, long. Like if somebody sends me a PDF and a thousand word press release with 25 images, or if they just send me like a note that says you should check this out, way, I'd be way more likely to be interested in the shorter email than the epic one. Yeah, so sh- shorter versus epic when you email writers and editors and also befriend the art writers and get to know them. And then that is a way that the art writers will ultimately connect with their editors and possibly convince them to run a story about you. Yeah, because you can't go straight to the editor. It has to be a publicist or a writer. And if you are friends with an editor or that can work, then they can find writers to try to write about you. But there has to be some kind of setup that you start with, because if you're not famous and you're not popular, you can't really get famous and popular if people don't write about you. And they're not going to write about you if you're unknown. So you have to kind of have some sort of nepotistic or deliberate way of pushing the issue. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think maybe that's something that, you know, artists aren't hearing enough, but it is. And you can't necessarily even just offer people money because... There's just levels of it you can't do with just offering people money to do things or trying to coerce them and doing things. That I think the social thing is important. I also got to the point in my career, and I think this is hard for a lot of people, is um, look at your work very coldly and think about what's wrong with what you're doing. Really think about what's wrong with what you're doing and improve your work. Try to, if you improve your work considerably from what it currently is through hard work and ingenuity and thought, and you come up with some new work that's just totally dynamite, a lot will change. But if you keep trying to push the work you've been doing and you wonder why you're frustrated, I think, I think just the simple act of 
making your work better can open a lot of doors as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is this like healthy level of self-critique that I think is often missing from the way artists view their own work. And I agree with you that that's something to take a step back, maybe just like walk away for a moment or an hour or a day and then come back and look at it and be like, okay, well, what, is there any reason besides like, instead of blaming it on like, I don't have enough friends who are writers or whatever, I don't have enough connections. Like think, is there a reason that maybe I'm not like in the mark? Well, I actually, there's a word, if you're into epistemology and you're like, okay, well, why do I paint that way? Why do I do? I've had to kind of like, disassemble everything and sort of start from scratch. I remember somebody who went to the Columbia University Arts Program said that one of the teachers was like that. He would just like knock you completely down and then build you back up. So I think you can knock yourself down and build yourself back up a few times. Yeah. And that can be, that can be really healthy. You know, it's just like if you're a professional athlete and you're supposed to have all the right muscles and you're like completely out of shape, you need to look in the mirror and think about what exercises to do. I like that. Knock yourself down and build yourself back up again. Right. Yeah. Give yourself that like self-critique that you might give. Because if you else. just think you're great and you're just riding on all that and you're frustrated with why it's not going anywhere, you probably have to improve. Yeah. I, trust me. I, I know uh, a good number of artists who are in that boat for sure. So we're going to come right back and Noah's going to tell you all a lot more about working with curators and much more. But first, a message from our sponsors. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you take the next step and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fairs. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine Fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we're offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world slash offer to learn more. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. So Noah, I have another question for you. With yourself and with White Hot and your other projects, you have built up quite a presence online and just in general. What are a few or a couple practical action steps looking at, you know, how White Hot has grown? Like, I totally understand where you're coming from. It's a lot of it is just it's choosing you and being there and being brought up by the coattails through social media. But if you have any action steps or advice that would help artists who might want to follow in your footsteps... And as an artist and exhibit in, you know, whatever, whether it's museums, galleries, to basically reach their career goals, what would be a couple of items you might mention to them? It depends on where you live and it depends on how difficult your, your daily life is versus how much time you have to make your art. There's a lot of people who have to work a day job. They don't have all day to paint. They don't have all day to strategize. At best, it should be a cottage industry. Like, for example, are you familiar with Jeff Wall? I'm not familiar, no. He's a famous photographer from the Vancouver area, and I've had a chance to talk to him a few different times. But but he's, I believe his wife has assisted him as his manager for a long time, or other people I know have kind of, their wife is not their manager, then they have a studio manager, 
or if you don't have a major gallery behind, I mean, if you're showing a major gallery, you might have like five people working on your career four or five days a week in an office. I think you have to have the, the product, which is the work, and then you have to take steps to promote it like everyone else on social media. I mean, there's some people that are just in the right place at the right time and the right people see, see their work. And in my case, it's like, I've been in a museum show. I was I was at my studio one time, and I uh, I did a big group of paintings. Worked very hard on them, and nobody wanted them. And on the very day that I took everything in a very frustrated frame of mind and put it in my storage room, I got an email from a museum that wanted to see what I was up to. And then I showed all of the work at a museum. Prepar- there's that whole kind of like preparation, uh, you know, like opportunity and uh, meets the person who's like prepared i suppose so it's the i think the hardest thing is to act like you're flying high and you have a lot to accomplish even if there's nothing going on yeah i agree i, I like that opportunity meets the one who's prepared and that's not exactly the quote there's a, yeah I, I i can't remember it either so it's okay <laughs> um it's it's and also it, that link that's there's also even though i totally dislike the concept it's true that uh, the persistent man goes further than the talented man if you want to genderize it but the persistent person goes further than the talented person because if you just sit around making great work but you're not persistently trying to contact people i remember there was an artist that was not famous and they went crazy just contacting everyone they literally just went through every potential important contact in their Facebook and their email, reached out in a kind of like a wild, desperate, like, you got to help me. Is there anything you can help me with? Exeter. And it was like, wow, this is like crazy meltdown. But then it ended up panning out and they really got a career out of, out of like just pulling all of their strings. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's different, different ways to go about it. Yeah, I think there's really interesting stuff in what you're saying here, Noah. I mean, there's the often quoted rule of showbiz, which is if someone asks three times, you give them the the part, right? And like, I think that's something to think about is just being persistent. The persistent person sometimes outstrips the talented one. Another thing I kind of want to just highlight there, you mentioned an artist kind of appealing to their Facebook audience or whatever it may be. I, I've been in situations that are not necessarily like art related or whatever. I mean, an example, I was in the middle of getting a mortgage earlier this year and I had spent five months getting it. And the broker said, listen, I don't think this is going to work. And I went to a friend of mine and I, who's in finance. I said, what do I do? And she said, well, you do this and this and this, but also you go on Facebook and you ask people. And I did it. And out of like however many Facebook friends I have, 2,000, 3,000, whatever, they actually pulled together and actually got to one lead from two different people who ended up closing the mortgage within 10 days. Mm-hmm. So a huge, like life-changing thing that happened simply because I went to my Facebook friends, which I wouldn't have even thought about doing. So it's often interesting to think like that there, you know, when you believe you've exhausted all options, that there might be an option there in your immediate circle. Well, no, this part, this yeah. one was like, it was like they had like, taken a bunch of Adderall and stayed up without sleeping for a week and were just wildly contacting every potential important contact on social wow. media possible in a desperate, wild attempt at, at 
rescuing themselves from oh, the, the hole that they were living in. Yeah, it's a different situation, but the idea just being that, you know, within your network may exist the the people that you need and the, you know, you can approach them. So I think yeah, I think also I think in in this era, more and more, with all of the really horrible stuff happening in the news and the reality of pandemic, it's like people are losing their connection to the intangible, the surreal and the I don't know, like the esoteric, the, the the sexiness and the fun and the imagination and the humor and the creativity is, is being drained out of everything with all of this reality stuff that's coming in. We're kind of drowning in reality right now. I, I do see that sometimes. So basically what you're saying is with that, how does that kind of relate back to, well, relate back to artists and the advice for kind of getting their work out there or whatever, maybe like whatever... Mm-hmm. Well, I think on a certain level, like, if you want reality, you can take the L train. (laughs) And I think there's something enigmatic about being willing to not embrace reality. Certainly artists of the 80s, like Keith Haring and Basquiat and those kind of guys were very, like, militant about identity and the AIDS crisis and things that were very serious happening in reality to people. I think it was wonderful. And I I love art that engages with politics and identity and that sort of thing. But I mean, I didn't see a lot of Trump art. I didn't see a lot of pandemic art. Did you? Yeah, I mean, I felt like there was a lot of Trump art for a while. I haven't seen much pandemic art. And I mean... Where's the Barbara Kruger coronavirus? Right. I I don't know. Giant coronavirus text classic. I really don't know, and I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not, not necessarily her, but I mean yeah. like somebody that sort of inhabits her right, space, right. and like where and, are the where are the grand gestures against yeah. Trump by Shepard Fairey, and mm-hmm. you know I love Shepard Fairey; he's a very nice person, and he's been very kind to me. But him and Banksy, they just kind of disappeared during the Trump thing, and I think it's easily explained, which is, and this relates to your question because. I think artists have to think about how they're connecting with their era to get themselves out there because what they're doing will be the evidence of what their era was about, at least from their own particular life or their fantasy world. Um, I mean, even if you're doing things that don't necessarily relate to reality in your art, there's going to be an influence of the era you're in within it somehow. You can't really escape it or even the way it's viewed in relation to history. I like the way you, you kind of phrase that, though, of, of artists figuring out how you're connecting with your era, because I do get a little tired of like the just, hey, I did a satire of Trump or something. But like, you know, how can you do this in an interesting way that you talk about more than, you know, just the face? Well, I mean, Reagan was Ronald Reagan was very similar to Trump in a lot of ways in, in the way that he was um, dealing with the AIDS crisis and the, there was no funding at all for the, the AIDS crisis from Reagan. It was just no. And Trump, his reaction to the COVID crisis was like, let's do herd immunity, but not tell everybody. Right. So, but people aren't going like, aren't making giant anti-Trump COVID pieces of art. So why is that? Why was that something that was interesting in the 80s? But now it's like, I think the explanation is that 
the taste of galleries and the taste of collectors has become less political and more aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Sort of after it went through the kind of eye candy phase in New York where everything was just about bright colors. I don't think we ever really, really broke out of that willingness for people to love bright colors. Right. And oftentimes, if an artist looks at the color that they're using, it juices up their color, brightens up their colors considerably in a way that's appealing. They'll see a lot more popularity if they if they really learn to engage with bright, vibrating colors in a way. Unless their work isn't about that entirely, and it's an impossibility. I think color is absolute magic if it's done right. It's yeah. absolute crap if it's done wrong. <laughs> I 100% agree. <laughs> they used to print those big Art Basel books. Do you remember that? When you went to the fair, you would get this big, thick catalog. Mm-hmm. They stopped doing that. But I would look through that, and I would flip a page, and it would be a New York gallery or a United States gallery, and it would be bright, primary, technicolor painting. And then I'd flip the page, and it would be a black and white piece at a European gallery. And then I flip the page and the technical or bright piece in New York, so on. And it was like, I came to the realization that New York is already gray and dingy as it is. So people want bright colors in New York. They don't want more gray and dingy stuff. There's a few exceptions. I mean, certainly uh, Gerhard Richter has exploited bright colors in his abstractions, but he's also exploited black and white and more somber colors in some of his earlier paintings. But bright colors is something that takes a lot of charisma and bravery to engage with. And if you're doing something brave and charismatic and fearless with your art, I think humanity really responds to that. I like that brave and charismatic with your art and you'll see the response I like the idea of embracing embracing your era. And but there's also people like Agnes Martin who, you know, they're not flashy artists yet. I love them, but they're not like totally like wild. Alice Neal had a recent show and it's like, if her work was less colorful, I don't think it would be as effective. But she's yeah. a great colorist, somewhat. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a very good note for, for artists and just thinking about, you know, what you're, you know, are you using the colors? So yeah, do a checklist. Yeah. So is my work good? And if it's not, how can I improve it? Are my colors the kind of colors that I want to be using? And could I brighten my colors up and still retain my vision? Could I brighten my, really brighten my colors up and still retain my sense of self? Is my work imaginary based on fantasy, connecting with surrealism? Or is my work about politics and identity? And am I using my sense of humor? I don't always like paintings that are have a punchline, but I think sometimes people could connect with their sense of humor a bit more. Basquiat's a good example. He's political, humorist, playful, colorful. You know, he'd do a painting and it just like predominantly bright yellow. I was listening to an interview with Roy Lichtenstein recently. I actually had published a Roy Lichtenstein interview on my podcast and he was saying that we live in kind of like a pop art sort of culture and i think post pop art there's been a lot of crappy art made that's sort of imitative of pop art but i think in the hands of a really good artist the the pop art influence can can work but it's like before warhol and Liechtenstein was sort of one art world and then after that was kind of another aesthetic my my take on it is that really like 
you often hear like this, this style of art is dead, pop art is dead, or this is dead or that is dead. And I really think, you know, in the hands of a good artist thinking about things like you're mentioning here, like how am I connecting to my era? Am I using, am I bringing the colors that I could be? Am I bringing charisma and bravery to my art? I mean, it doesn't really, to me personally, even as a collector, which I'm an avid collector, and I've, you know, I've bought hundreds of pieces, very different styles. It's less about like, what style does this fit in? Is it pop art? Is it street art or whatever? More about like, am I seeing those things come through in the art, the bravery? Am I seeing the connection? Well, then there's also that level of it. By the way, it would be great if you collected one of my paintings, but um, <laughs> the uh, there's a level of it where then the collector's taste comes into play. Yes. You know, I, think that's but I mean, if you look at like some of the more, more uh, popular successful painters, I couldn't, uh, I mean, I could think of a few that don't use bright colors, but I mean, what really well-known painter, I mean, maybe Anselm Kiefer uses a lot of black and darker colors. Um, there's a number of painters that use, I'm talking about like really famous painters. I, at least the ones I like have a, have a really unique color sense. Yeah. I think color is, is difficult. Making bright colors work in paintings is one of the harder things. Yeah, and that, that may be a good challenge for artists like painters who are listening and also other types of artists just to see, like, can I still realize my vision but bring in some more vibrant colors and, you know, improve yeah. my color sense? I mean, as corny as that sounds, I think it's basically there's some kind of magic going on where it's like, where it's like a very difficult thing to do to handle color, especially vibrating really contemporary bright color. Mm-hmm. But I think if you can, you can do it, I think your career and your level of attention from collectors in the art world in general will change. I agree. I, um, I'll relate a quick story and we'll, we'll move on. But um, I'm here in Mexico City and, and it's, uh, it's Zona Maco week right now. They've changed from the actual fair in February to just basically having all the galleries in the city open. And some of them are hosting other shows from other gallery, from international galleries. It's very fun. I, I walked into a gallery yesterday, Galleria uh, Karen Uber in Juarez. I don't remember the name of the artist, unfortunately, but they were the pieces were all like, I would say sort of abstract, but there were some figures in them and they were extremely bright. They were absolutely beautiful. And like I said, I don't have a, a style, but I, I do tend to like figurative painting. These were not what I would call figurative, but like I just could not stop staring at them. And it really, the color, I did note, like I, the color was so vibrant on these. And my friend who I was with had the same comment and we were both like, wow, like, especially like you mentioned New York City being gray and dark. I mean, this has been a very dark time, I would say, the past year and a half in a way, like metaphorically. Mm-hmm. I'm attracted to that brightness at this moment. Like I really hit me when I walked in that gallery. I was like, if I could afford it right now, I would buy this like 16 foot wide panel. I don't know where I would put it, but I, I just love it. So I think it was, it really speaks to what you're saying. I think I, I spent a lot of time with Frank Stella because I interviewed him several times, went to his studio and had conversations and arguments about abstract expressionism with him and different stuff like that. He's an example of somebody who also did like black paintings, but then those early black paintings, his were black as a color but then his later work is very technicolor yeah it's kind of like rainbow colors no very and i think those are probably pre-mixed colors from hardware store interesting (laughs) you know like choosing a palette right 
Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I mean, Matisse is a perfect example of somebody who can use bright colors really well. Even like if you're someone whose work wants to do more realism, you can look look at Edward Hopper, or look at Wayne Thiebaud, look at Richard Dupin-Corn. Um, Wayne Thiebaud is an excellent example of somebody who uses vivid color but still like kind of retains a certain amount of three-dimensional realism if that's your bag. So yeah, I think that's a pathway to greater... I mean, you're a painter, so technically you should be engaging with color in some way. If color isn't something that you want to engage in in that way, I'm not saying you have to, then improve your work. If it's not color, then improve your work in other ways. But color using using nice colors it's, is very seductive and very advanced if it's done correctly. Agreed. I like that. All right. You've had your work in galleries and museums. In, in your experience, do you find that you fit where you fit? Or are there circumstances where, as an artist, you need to adapt to fit into the curatorial agenda of a gallery or a museum? I've never had sex with a curator. <laughs> and I've been put in shows. So they must like my art. I love it. But there's a lot of um, nepotism and sexual interaction in the art world that I've just never really gotten into. There's other ways like making great work and right. reaching out to people and being professional that yeah. that works too. I agree. I, I guess the question is more like, do you ever feel that you need to adapt the, the content or whatever of the work to fit a particular show? Or is it usually that you've uh-huh. created the work? And well, I was recently in a mortality themed exhibition curated by Donald Custett um, at the Katzen Museum American University in Washington, D.C., which incidentally didn't open because of COVID, but they, it keeps getting reviewed and they put out a catalog and keeps showing up in different places with a lot of major reviews. But I knew Donald and he was aware of my work. He also writes for my magazine. So I was kind of like on his radar and I happened to have a bunch of paintings that I had made that had skulls in them, so it fit perfectly with the theme. But I think if I didn't have skull paintings or mortality paintings, I would have probably made something specifically for that theme. But I don't always, I don't always work towards the theme, but you can. It's not my favorite thing to do. Yep. Cool. All right. So, Noah, we are drawing to a close here, and this has been an incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed just getting to know you and learn about your perspective on art, and I think that's going to be really valuable for all of our listeners. So let's bring this kind of home for everybody out there listening. What would be one thing you would suggest to our artists out there listening, just one thing for them to do like right now or like first thing in the morning to improve their career and improve their art. Listen to the White Hot Magazine podcast. <laughs> I love that. That'd be one thing that's on all these platforms. But I think, um, yeah, just make your work better and forget about your ego for a second and just try to deal with the facts. I like that. Forget about your ego, deal with the facts and improve your work and listen to the White Hot podcast, which you can find on all these exactly. apps, Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, everywhere out there. Right. To all of you artists listening out there, Noah has been here with us today sharing his amazing perspective with you. You're probably going to want to go back and take notes so you can listen to this and all of our past podcasts on our website at www.superfine.world. 
To connect with Noah, you can follow him at New York Becker on Instagram, and you should follow White Hot Magazine on Instagram and visit www.whitehotmagazine.com and www.noahbeckerart.com. And again, you can listen to Noah's podcast on Apple Podcasts as well. We're right? also on the Foundation app with NFTs. Ooh, okay. The Foundation app for NFTs. That is a tiny bit above my head. Another another conversation. Okay. It's a whole other podcast. Again, if you want to follow them on there, you can learn more about that. And I know that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, maybe a little bit more than me, just because I don't quite know about it yet. So as always, you can remember that we are Superfine Art Fair on Instagram. Um, we do appreciate a share if you're ever listening to and enjoying the artist business plan that helps us get out to more artists around the world. And once again, we mentioned this before, and we would really genuinely appreciate it if you take just a moment of your time to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's our number one platform. And those ratings and reviews are really critical in helping other artists, entrepreneurs like yourselves find us online. As always, I'd like to wrap up this class by sharing a quick quote with you all. And I hope that quote today is relevant. And today it is, you are not here merely to make a living. You are here in order to enable the world to live more amply, with greater vision, with a finer spirit of hope and achievement. You are here to enrich the world and you impoverish yourself if you forget that errand. That is Woodrow Wilson, former president of the U.S., Noah, it has been such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for sharing your perspective with our listeners. And for that, we're so grateful to you. My pleasure. Everybody else, have an awesome rest of your day. Remember to stay on top of your artist business plan. Get out there and make it happen for yourselves. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this in all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at Superfine Art Fair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Just shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney@superfine.world, and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney@superfine.world.